Good morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. It's lovely to have Graham's dad with us uh, today, and you're very welcome, John. Uh, this service for the first Sunday in Lent will be led by our Minister Katrina, and as usual, everything we need to follow the service is both on our printed order of service and on the screen. Please stay and have a cup of tea or coffee at the end of the service. At 7pm, our evening service will be in Kelvinside Hill Head Church, and I'll be leading that service. Well done, those of you who've managed to make it here this morning. I'm conscious there are a few folk who, quite rightly, have probably looked out of the window and thought, the wise thing to do is stay indoors, but it's great to be here, and it's great to worship our God. And I've just realised that having picked a call to worship. I haven't actually printed it off, so I'm just going to have to snatch this Bible to read to you from Psalm 91. Many of you will remember that Psalm 91 was Miss Allen's favourite psalm, but it is also a psalm from which Jesus quoted at one point. So Psalm, verse, psalm 91 verses 9 to 12. You have made the Lord your defender and the Most High your protector, and so no disaster will strike you, no violence will come near your home. God will put his angels in charge of you to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands to keep you from hurting your feet on the stones. Our opening hymn of worship this morning is a really old hymn of praise. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. And if you're able to stand as we sing, you're invited to do so.
wrote these prayers, it was earlier in the week when the skies were blue and the sun was shining. Maybe I'll have to sneak an extra line in about snow and wind or something. The form our prayers are going to take this morning is what is known as a litany. And a litany, a litany is kind of a list with a lot of repeated patterns. So I will say something and at the end of each line, I will say the same pattern of words. So it's a litany of thanksgiving and confession. And after that, we will join together in the Lord's Prayer. So let's pray together. For golden daffodils and colourful crocuses, we thank you, Creator God. For crystal clear water and smooth pebbles, we thank you, Creator God. For the warmth of the sunshine and the cool of the breeze, we thank you, Creator God. For downy white snowflakes and rain to replenish the rivers, we thank you, Creator God. For birdsong just before the dawn and again at the close of day, we thank you, Creator God. For crunchy carrots and creamy mashed potatoes, we thank you, Creator God. For cosy pyjamas and fluffy bath towels, we thank you, Creator God. For cuddles with those we love and for moments of chosen solitude, we thank you, Creator God. For all that brings us delight, for all that makes us feel truly alive, we thank you, Creator God. For slash and burn deforestation, and for habitats destroyed, we are sorry, Creator God. For plastic in the oceans and fly tipping in the countryside, we are sorry, Creator God. For the greenhouse effect and the squandering of Earth's precious resources, we are sorry, Creator God. For the endangering of insects, birds, reptiles and mammals, we are sorry, Creator God. For our silent complicity and for our unquestioning acceptance, we are sorry, Creator God. For all that dehumanises us, for all that makes us less than fully alive, we are sorry, Creator God. For every foolish choice and every selfish action, you forgive us, Creator God. For every broken promise and for every poor decision, you forgive us, Creator God. Everything that harms, you heal. Everything that destroys, you recreate. Loved, cherished, forgiven and restored, we choose once more to serve you, our Creator God. And as your precious children, siblings in Christ and of Christ, we join our voices together in prayer, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever.
every now and then I get two ideas in one week and that's kind of what's happened today and I couldn't decide which to pick so I'm sort of going to go with both of them. So I've got an orange, well actually I've got two oranges and I'm going to peel it. I have cleaned my hands so you'll be alright. Does anybody want to come and see how many segments there are in this orange? How many different pieces I can make the orange into when I've opened it? Oh, that's good. A few people. Get some. That's right. Let's see how many bits we've got in here, shall we, when we break it open? Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, it's not in this one, eight, nine, ten, 11. There were 11 in that orange. But how many fruit did I have at the start? There were 11 pieces. But how many, how many oranges did I have? One orange. Let's open another one up, shall we, on the basis that I bought two and, and see if it's the same because I actually don't know. I've never actually checked this before, so I have no idea whether all oranges have the same number of segments. And I'm not even pretending I don't have a clue because I genuinely do not have a clue. But it's one, so that orange had 11, and this orange has got, let's see, it's got a bit more um, pithy stuff, this one. All right, let's see. Let's move those across. Let's see how we go. One, two, three, four, five, six. Seven, it's teeny one there. Eight, nine, ten. Ah, so not the same. I did not know that. And I kind of hoped it would be nine, because that would have perfectly fitted with my first connection, but that's okay. So we had one fruit that has lots of different segments. And if you'd like to have a piece of orange, you're very welcome to have a piece of orange. In the Bible, it tells us that the fruit of God's spirit is one fruit in nine forms. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Now, that's a heck of a lot to try and remember all those different things. But all those things together are like one orange. Different segments, but one orange. And, of course, in God, we see all of those things. But as I was doing some research for our services over the next few weeks, I came across a, a, a word that I think you really need a Scouse accent to do it properly. It's not quite a Scottish, it's more of a, scout, a Scousey, which is a bit harsher than a, than, a, than a Scottish one. It's a Hebrew word, chesed, chesed. I can't do that properly, even after all these years. C-H-E-S-E-D. And it, you can't translate it into English. There isn't an English word for it. And way back at the time that Miles Coverdale was translating the Bible into the English language, he invented a word that would translate this quite well. And it kind of puts back two of these segments of the orange, if you like. If this is love and this is kindness, he kind of puts them together and says, chesed is God's loving kindness. And sometimes um, more recent translators of the Bible say it's God's steadfast love, God's unchanging love, God's unfailing love, God's love which we, we see in the kindness of God. And with a bit of help of that wonderful thing called the internet, I managed to find a website that had some verses of the Psalms where that chesed word has been translated as loving kindness. And I wonder if there are a couple of people who would like to help me to pass out these so that everybody can take one. 
I'll tell you what, I'll start at the end of the choir, and by the time it gets back up to the front, maybe somebody will feel like taking over and passing them round. So you can choose one of these to take away with you. It's a psalm that speaks of God's loving kindness for you. Now, you know fine well, I'm not really into promise boxes where you dip in and, and choose a random verse and hope it says something nice. So these are a bit more selective than that. But these are promises to take away, or verses really rather than promises, verses to take away that talk about God's loving kindness. And if you're having a bad day, or you just think you need a bit of cheering up and you haven't got any oranges, you can open it up and have a look at it. You can use it as a bookmark, you can stick it on your fridge, you can do anything with it really. But it's just one of the ways of reminding ourselves that God's loving kindness, God's faithfulness, God's goodness, God's mercy, all these things, they never end. They never ever end. And there is a phrase in the Bible that says, the steadfast love of God or God's chesed love never ceases. God's mercies never end. Each day they are renewed. They're completely restored, completely refilled because God is so faithful. And we're going to sing a song about that now, which some of you may remember from the 1970s or 80s. Thanks, Paul. Testament lesson this morning is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6 verses 13 to 19. Fear the Lord your God, serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you, for the Lord your God who is among you is a jealous God and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight, so that it may go well with you, and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors, thrusting out all your enemies before you, as the Lord said." And the New Testament lesson is from 
Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. Jesus is tested in the wilderness. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for forty days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. So here we are in Lent, a period of roughly six weeks that has for centuries been seen by Christians as a time of spiritual preparation for Easter. The word itself is Old English in origin, coming from a similar word, Lenkt or Lenkton, the name that was given to spring, the days, the season in which the days become longer. So The Lent fast, if you like, really just meant the fast that took place in the springtime, the time of spiritual preparation, which happened to coincide with the lead up to Easter. And of course, Easter is another pre-Christian word. The arguments over its origin about whether it is linked to Erster, a goddess, a goddess of fertility, and the idea of eggs and oestrogen, that's one theory. There's another theory that it's more about east, as in the direction, but who knows. These were words that were already in use at the time that Christianity was coming to these islands. In past times, on the evening before the fast began, devout people would go to the church to be shriven by the priest. And yes, here we have another Old English word. To be shriven means to be absolved. The people would confess their sins and the priest would grant them absolution. He would shrive them. I did try to find out if there are Gallic words for these and I have absolutely no joy so far. So if anybody can point me to the Gallic names for these. Um, The Welsh names are more reflecting Germanic and French. I have no idea what the the Gallic words are. So they would go to church, they would be shriven by the priest, then they would go home, and then they would have a great feast of pancakes because they had to eat up all the fatty food that was left in the house, all the milk and all the eggs that wouldn't keep for six weeks, any cheese, any butter, anything like that that was fatty had to be eaten up because it wouldn't keep and it didn't want to throw it away. 
and then the next day, the day we call Ash Wednesday, they would go back to church again, they were very devout in those days, and they would have a very solemn service in which the priest would remind them of their mortality. They would be marked with ashes on their forehead, either a blob or a cross, usually made from burning the leftover palm crosses from the year before. And they would hear these very solemn words, Remember, O mortal, you are dust, and to dust you will return. And to this day, if you went into a Catholic church, or most Anglican churches, or an Orthodox church on their equivalent days, you would have these services. They, they still happen. But in Protestant non-conformist churches, of which we are a proud part, it has to be said that these rituals and the associated fasting are pretty much long gone. Even so, we do tend to like to prepare our hearts and minds for Easter. And we begin with the story of Jesus in the wilderness as he prepares to begin his ministry. Two out of the four Gospels give us an account of this experience, Matthew and Luke. And they tell the story in a slightly different order. And we can get ourselves into a right fankle trying to work out whether Luke's right or Matthew's right about the chronology and end up missing the point that actually it doesn't matter which order Jesus experienced these temptations. They are there as examples for us of the temptations Jesus experienced because they're not the only ones. As Luke records for us, at the end of this time, the devil, the tempter, departs from Jesus until an opportune time. In other words, Jesus would go on being tempted all throughout his life. And as the Apostle says, Apostle Paul says to us at one point, Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, but did not stumble, did not fall short. Or if you want the churchy word, he didn't sin. So I want to suggest to you that in the story that we heard read for us this morning by Ken, there are four temptations. Three of them are quite obvious. The fourth one, less so. So let's have a look at them. Turn the stones into bread. Perhaps it's helpful to remind ourselves very briefly of the story so far. Jesus has grown up in Nazareth and lived in obscurity until about the age of 30. And now, following his recent baptism by John, he has chosen to go away on his own to reflect. And the questions start forming in his mind. He recalls those words that were spoken to him that he heard come from heaven as he came up out of the water. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. But what does that mean? If I'm really the son of God, then I must be divine. And if I'm divine, then I must have power over creation. And if I have power over creation, then, well, actually, do you know what? I could take those stones and turn them into bread and I wouldn't be hungry anymore. And if I could turn stones into bread, well, well, yeah, I could eat my fill. But then if I could fill myself up, I, I could just do away with hunger altogether. I could give food to everybody who is hungry. But why would I choose to do that? What, what would motivate me to give everybody food to eat? Hmm. Yeah, actually, I could bribe people. I could say, if I meet your physical needs, then you are in my debt forever. See, it's a really complicated temptation. And it's one that keeps scholars and preachers very busy trying to work out precisely what was going on here. Was Jesus being tempted to look after himself, to just say, I'm hungry, I can make bread for me? Or to show off his powers? Or was he being tempted to bribe people by giving them everything their heart desired, every physical thing they could imagine? I wonder how we hear that temptation this morning. 
How do we think Jesus was being tempted? And how does any of that resonate with our own experience, the kind of temptations that we might have? Looking after number one, bribing people, buying their friendship. (coughs) Jesus' response is striking. You can't live by bread alone. There is so much more to life than physical sufficiency. But what that actually means, he doesn't tell us. He expects us to go off and think about that one for ourselves. So the first temptation then could be summed up as bread and bribery. Bow down and worship me, says the tempter. Perhaps Jesus imagined himself on the top of a very high mountain. Or perhaps he just went for a walk and climbed a hill and he looked out at what lay before him. But whether it was a real walk up a hill or whether it was in his, in his imagination, a thought enters his mind. I could seize control of all of this. I could be the king of the world. Never mind what's his face in Titanic. All I need to do, thinks Jesus, I could just seize it. I could, be, I could dominate everybody. I could have everybody under subjection. I could coerce people. I could control people. If I'm the son of God, surely it's all my rights. Is that what he thought? Is that the kind of temptation that was going on for him? I can make my, you follow me simply by making your life very difficult if you don't. I can manipulate you with threats of disaster if you dare to disobey me. Actually, I think we heard a little bit of that in the Old Testament reading. I can use my authority and my power to make you serve me at your expense. I could be a dictator, I could be a despot, I could be any of these things. Not so supernatural, this one. And for me, one I find it easier to relate to in some ways. Because I just have to turn on the television or turn on the radio, or open a newspaper, or click on a news website, and there it is in the world around us. People find themselves drawn to positions of power, and the lure of that power can become so overwhelming that it potentially or actually corrupts those who exert it. And whether it's politics, which is what we hear about mostly on the news, or industry or commerce, whether it's religion, which we also have been hearing about on the news quite a lot, there is no sphere of life exempt from this temptation. And I think there's a double tragedy in this temptation in that it demeans everyone and everything that it ensnares, both those who seem to exert the power and those who are powerless. Now, most of us don't have a lot of obvious power. None of us is the Prime Minister or the First Minister or or the Pope or whatever, last time I looked. We aren't in high office. And yet, with every choice we make, we do actually exert some power. And we go into a shop and choose this brand or that brand. When we speak to somebody and we decide we're going to speak this way and not that way. When we decide we will go to this place or that place, do this thing or that thing. We have power And perhaps we begin to realise our power can be exerted for good or not.
Jesus' response to his temptation to seize power, to become a despotic leader, to make people obey him no matter what, is one that he responds to by recognising who he is. He says, actually, authority rests with God, not with me. Now, this is kind of the most super theologically complex bit of this whole thing, I find. Jesus is the son of God. Jesus may be full of God. He may even be fully God. But he's not the fullness of God. God is more than Jesus. And if you can work that out, then please explain it to me because it kind of makes my head hurt but what Jesus is saying is this is not all about me this is beyond me true authority is outside of creation is outside of time and space even I Jesus not me the son of God do not have all absolute authority that lies with God so he rejects a second temptation the temptation to belittle people and to bully people. Two down. Jesus has another temptation. Jump off the temple. Now this one almost certainly would have been in his imagination. I can't actually imagine Jesus being able to physically get up onto the highest point of the temple and stand there and look like he's about to jump off. But in his imagination, he goes to the very heart of faith and practice. Here is the place that devout Jews and God-fearing gentles come from all over the known world to worship God or to look for God. So if I stood on the top of it, he thinks, and jumped off, and just as everybody's screaming and thinking I'm going to crash into the ground and be killed, the angels could swoop up and catch me. Remember that saying in Psalm 91? You will not let your feet strike your foot. His angels will catch you. What on earth might prompt somebody to do that, to think that? Surely nobody in their right mind would think of doing something like that. Is he saying, or is the temptation arising from something inside him? I need your attention I need you to notice me. I need the affirmation that that will give me. Your response to my action will give me value. I need to impress you. I'm not enough. But if I show off, if I pretend I'm something amazing, you might just think I'm okay. Is it something like... I just need my moment in the spotlight. It wouldn't be 15 minutes of fame if you leapt off the temple. It'd be 15 seconds if you were lucky. And even if it goes horribly wrong, you'll know that I was here. Is it a temptation just to think I'm nothing? I'm, I'm no one. I'm useless. I'm, I'm unimportant. And so I've got to do something to prove who I am. I matter. The need to be noticed, the need to be needed, the need for a life to matter, to count, these are very real experiences, or they're certainly real for me. And I think they do raise questions about the kind of desires that might arise from our need to be needed, our need to be loved, our need to be valued, our need to be recognised. Jesus is faced with a temptation to demonstrate to himself, let alone everybody, anybody else, that actually he is who he believes himself to be. He needs, this is a temptation, like if I jump off here and God catch and the angels to catch me, then that's okay. I do know I am this person that God has called me to be. And the way he reacts is to say, but I must not test God. 
I mustn't test God. That's not what it's out about. Don't be lured into thinking that a God who loves you is somehow beholden to you, who has to put it all right when you do something stupid. It's kind of what he's saying to himself here. Don't think you have a right to test God, to test God's power or test God's protection. Don't think God's there to do your will, to make you look good, to make you feel worthy and valued, to fulfil your expectations. And so the third temptation that Jesus seemed to face is of bragging and bravado. Look at me, everybody. I can jump off this, te- this temple and I'll be all right. We're then told that after this time of prayer and fasting, Jesus went back to Galilee and began his ministry. And we do get ongoing hints of temptation at other times when he wrestles with what it means to fulfil his destiny. Perhaps most poignantly around the time of his arrest and his execution. Remember that prayer in the garden, if it be your will, take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. The thing is that Jesus had a choice to make when he left the wilderness. He could either get on and live his life or he could be paralysed by fear of temptation. Because the fourth temptation is temptation itself. What does that mean? Well, Jesus could have spent the rest of his life thinking about the things that he shouldn't do. He shouldn't bribe. He shouldn't bully. He shouldn't boast. He shouldn't belittle. He shouldn't begrudge. He shouldn't do this and he shouldn't be that. And in fact, he could have become so afraid of making the wrong choice that he made no choice at all. But he didn't. He knew where his values lay. He knew the things that guided him. This loving God, this chesed of God, the loving kindness for neighbour and for self. And so he went out from the wilderness place to go and be Jesus. He hadn't got it all worked out. The gospel stories tell us he still had a lot of working out to do. But he moved on. And I find that quite liberating and quite helpful The big C church, the church universal, Catholic, apostolic, whatever, sometimes falls into the temptation. I don't even know why I say sometimes. It falls into the temptation of making Christianity very restrictive and legalistic. A long list of thou shalt nots. Our Baptist forebears are as bad. You know? (coughs) Don't smile. Don't have fun. Don't drink. Don't gamble. Don't dance, except for if it's an approved kind of dance. Don't do this. Don't do that. We risk denying our humanity out of fear of making mistakes. And the church tends to, or has tended to, say, if you believe what we believe, if you behave the way we tell you to behave, then we might just let you belong. Maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit for effect, but I'm not so sure. And one of the consequences of that history is that the local churches, the small C churches, are sometimes frightened that we're going to mess up. Well, if, if, if we do, you know, smile, what might happen? If we do split oranges open in the front of the church, there's a lovely big stain on the tablecloth, What might happen if we do allow the young people to take a lead? If we do allow people who are women to preach? Shock horror. 
if we do say actually we are a church in which your sexuality is no bar to full participation in our leadership what might happen these are challenging things and it's risky but it's what Jesus calls us to do Jesus says you know don't stand there worrying about what you shouldn't do know who you are and live it and I think there is a possibility for me anyway that fear of fouling up stops me doing anything and of course there are temptations of course there are times when we make decisions that are less than ideal and of course there are times when we mess up certainly times I mess up for goodness sake and over the next few weeks we're going to journey on with Jesus and look at some of the other temptations that he faced how he had to continue to work out what it meant to be the person God had called him to be so if there's something to hold on to as we go through our journey through Lent this year I think it's just this that Jesus actually knows exactly what it's like to feel temptation to feel inadequate, to be unsure, to wonder if I do this, if I do that, what will happen. He knows what it is to, do, to reflect on deep, deep questions and to risk doing nothing because we fear doing the wrong thing. But the other thing we can do as we journey through Lent is to hold on to those verses from the Psalms those little slips of paper that we passed out, that speak to us of God's indestructible, unending, loving kindness that is offered to us newly every day. If I mess up today, I get a clean sheet tomorrow. If I go to bed worried that I haven't been the person that God wants me to be today, God forgives me, dusts me down, lets me have a, some sleep, because I tend to worry. And in the morning, it's a fresh start. God's loving kindness is there. God's faithfulness, God's gentleness, God's promises are trustworthy. And he will lead us through our own wildernesses to be the people we are called to be. <coughs> Amen. So let's sing a hymn, perhaps not the most familiar, but the tune is a lovely old one, which I think we will know. Jesus, tempted in the desert, lonely, hungry, filled with dread, use the power, the tempter tells him, turn these barren rocks <coughs> to bread.
Let us come before the Lord for prayers for others. Our Lord and our God, as Jesus was tempted in the desert and he overcame, so we now pray with a confidence that as we turn our thoughts to others and the world around us, the trials and tribulations we see everywhere can also be overcome. Jesus was famished and was asked to turn stones into bread. Though he resisted, we know you ask us not to resist the hungry and the poor. So we pray for those around the world in need of food. We pray for agencies who supply hunger relief and ask they be given the resources and the access to those countries most in need of basic food and water. Here especially we think of Nigeria, South Sudan, Somalia, and indeed Yemen. We also pray for root causes of famine and ask that where human action is responsible, you teach us how to bring equity, peace, and charity to the systems in authority and power. We also pray for our own city, for the food banks and those who run them, and for the homeless and the hungry who need to use those food banks. We pray for those who, on the street, sacrifice their dignity to ask for spare change in hopes of getting enough for the next meal. Help them and help us to break the cycle of poverty and homelessness that grips their lives. Lead us not into the temptation of neglect. Jesus was offered the power of kingdoms and governments. Though he resisted, we know you ask us not to resist responsible citizenship. So to that end, we pray for the governments and elected members in Westminster and in Brussels. As Brexit negotiations come to a head, we are all too aware of the mounting anxieties. Anxieties for negotiating officials, for those holding the power to vote, and for those of us members of the public. We pray for perspicacity, wisdom, clear-headedness, and the courage to compromise in all the deliberations and decisions that are being made and are about to be made. Lead us not into the temptation of indifference or partisan insistence. Jesus was asked to test God by casting himself from a great height. Though he resisted, we know you ask us not to resist a reliance upon you when we stand at heights seemingly too great for survival. So we think of those who face challenges of an immense and daunting nature. Here we bring before you this week the work of BMS in the region of Israel and Palestine. We think of the Arab-Palestinian students training at the Bethlehem Bible College and wonder how their ministry can possibly gain traction in a region so beset by historical ethnic, and religious conflict. Yet we pray for tenacity in the teachers and students alike as they prepare for ministry in lands where that ministry will invariably encounter further conflict. Lead us not into temptation of lost causes. We also bring before you our own members this week, Joan Ross and Margaret Semple. 
We are grateful for the services they provide here at Hillhead, both those that are obvious, as in the choir or Sunday school, manager's court, but also those behind the scenes, the many tasks that we do not see. We thank you for their service, but we also pray that when they face challenges seemingly beyond their ability to cope, you will be there for them, granting them the assurance of your support, guidance, and love. Lead them not into the temptation of panic or fear. And so our prayer is this. May the temptations of the greatest intensity, those that lead to harm and destruction, yield to the counterforce that is Jesus. And may this Jesus be real and present in our lives this week at all levels and at all times. In the name of Christ and his chesed we pray. Amen. Loving God, we bring you these gifts of money. We bring you our voices in song and in prayer. We bring you our hands and feet, our minds and our hearts.
and we offer them all to you in the name of Christ. Amen. Freedom and life are ours, for Christ has set us free. If you're able, you're invited to stand as we sing. God, whose loving kindness is ever present, lead us on from here to be the people you call us to be, freed from the fear of failing and growing daily in grace, faith and love. <laughs> 